we'll actually get the kids to come back out at the end for the songs. So, yeah. Give you the wink. We're good. So Sarge is going to help me out, but I just want to start this, um, this sermon by listening to a song. And there was actually, the proper version of it was actually quite loud, rocky. So I've tried to find an acoustic version. He does have, this guy does have a bit of a gravelly voice. Or as my dad would say, sounds like he's in pain. But I want you to listen to the words. Um, and take it in as we start this service off. It is written by a Christian, but it's not necessarily a Christian song. Um, so if you can just kick that off for a Sarge. Please. 
It's gonna be this time I'll get it right Gotta let it be this time I'll get it right Now I'm cutting that branch off the cherry tree And this will be my victory So, how that song make you feel? A bit depressed? I couldn't hear the words. You couldn't hear the words? I had them up on the screen. That's all right. It's a song about choices, if you couldn't tell. Not really about honey. Um, and I guess the, the consequences that come with our choices. It's about doing what you want, to get what you want, and not caring who it affects. And I think the other tragedy that the song states is that there aren't too many choices we make that don't affect others. And we rarely stop and think about how far-reaching our choices go into the lives of others. And today in our text, we are looking at something, uh, some tragic choices in the Bible. A choice made by a father towards his daughters and a husband's choice towards his wife. Choices that would affect these women for the rest of their lives. So, If you've got a Bible, open up to uh, Genesis 29. So for those uh, who either weren't here last week or are new, we're currently in a series, a mega series, which is just short for Meet God Almighty. Um, and we're sort of looking at characters of the Bible and how God met with them and how, I guess, we can learn um, from them in that situation, what God has said to them. Um, we've been following Jacob uh, the last couple of weeks, sort of jumping backwards and forwards um, on where, where he was travelling. And Ben took us through Rachel last week. And in the middle of Rachel's story, there's a woman named Leah. And I just want to say, if I call her Lee, please forgive me. I've been saying it all week and my wife's been on me. But so it, it may change as the story goes on, but please forgive me. I'm, I am trying. Um, and it's an interesting thing. I felt really strange after last Sunday because I felt Ben did a really great job and how much was actually left in this text. But um, God's been really good and um, opened up what I think there's a lot of stuff in there that we can learn. So there's only a few verses, so... Really, it's just chapters 29 and uh, chapter 30, I think it is, that we'll be um, passing through. But if you can find verse 16, we'll get our introduction going, and that's where we meet Lee. Genesis 29, verse 16. <laughs> Leah. See, I've done it already. Oh, fail. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. 
Oh, dear. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. Bing, correct. If Rudgie was here, he'd be um, keeping tally of this. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So we know that Leah was Rachel's older sister and there was also something different about her. Some have commented it was a physical difference. It's, it's really a tricky word and a, a tricky sentence to interpret. Um, but whatever it was that made Leah different, the difference is set in contrast to Rachel's form and beauty. And really, that's where it should have stopped for Leah. Uh, she should have just been the sister of Rachel, end of story. Rachel, who would become the heir of God's blessing through marrying Jacob. But her father Laban makes a choice that will change all that. Verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? See, everything in the story was, was just was great up until that point. Jacob had fallen in love. Um, he'd agreed to a bride price. He'd worked for seven years and he was all set to marry Rachel. And the night comes for the wedding. It's dark. There's a feast. And Laban sets up his plan to trick Jacob at the expense of his daughters. And just think about the conversation that would have gone on in this before we jump through. Rachel would have been broken, distraught, depressed. I imagine she probably cried herself to sleep. Um, If you know Rachel's future from past sermons or reading ahead, how much of this night affects the rest of her life? Did this choice change her for the worse? Leah, I'd imagine, would have been in shock, uh, surprised, embarrassed. Did she try to talk her father out of this plan or was she desperate? Was there parts of her that were hopeful? I bet she was scared, which is probably why she was silent when given to Jacob and why he doesn't recognise her. It's a complex, tragic situation, really, and nobody wins in this moment. Rachel's been betrayed by her father. Jacob is deceived by Laban and will now have to work another seven years while probably losing all respect and trust he had in Laban. How do we think Laban slept that night? I hope uncomfortably. Leah's entered into a lifetime of tension with a sister. She's now married to the man that God has told his offspring will bring blessing to all the nations, and yet she cannot conceive. And now add to that, her husband doesn't love her like his sister. She will always be plan B. She serves as a reminder of Laban's deception. And you can't help but get to this part in the story um, and just feel for Leah. Yes, she was active in carrying out Laban's plan, but she is now in an impossible situation. And, you know, through all these shenanigans, it, it begs the question, where is God? Does he not see this situation? Does he see how these people are hurting each other? Couldn't he just intervene and fix this? Or on the other hand, does God owe these people anything? Why should God help? What hope is there for this messed up family? But I'm so thankful that the God of the Bible is not like us. He deals with broken families. So finally, in this Jerry Springer-esque episode in the Old Testament, God makes a choice. Chapter 30, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. 
Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So God makes a choice. He enables Leah to have kids with Jacob. And God takes this unloved, undeserving person and loves her. She is now fulfilling the promise God made to Jacob. She is giving him heirs and descendants. And yet, this miracle, for whatever reason, has not changed, changed Jacob's opinion of Leah. He is still not loving her like he should. The story moves on in the preceding verses, as Ben took us through, um, about Rachel becoming jealous. Uh, she tries to have kids through her servant, Bilhah, which doesn't try to, she does. Um, Dan and Naphtali are born through the servant, um, Bilhah. And then Leah, realising that it stopped for her, she does the same thing. Um, she gets Zilpah and has Gad and Asher. And finally, it escalates to the point where Jacob had clearly stopped being intimate with Leah and Rachel. Sorry, Leah. And Rachel had cut Leah off from seeing Jacob, at least in the bedroom. We read in verse 14. During wheat harvest, Reuben was out in... uh, Sorry. Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. So this story that started out really great, has just it's just getting worse. As more kids that are born... The tension, the dislike, the hatred between the sisters just increases for each other. It would sure make for some interesting Christmas dinners. You've got to ask yourself, well, we're talking about the women right now, but where's Jacob in all this? We'll get to him later. So moving on, Leah effectively buys a night with Jacob with the son's mandrakes. Just when this couldn't get weirder, God comes back into the story. And he listens to Leah. He actually honours this woman's desire to fall pregnant with her loveless husband. Verse 17, God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Now, at this point, I facepalm for Leah. God heard you. He loved you. And you think that he did that to reward you for sending your slave to have sex with your husband. I normally leave the application for texts like this till the end, but I just want to say something. Sometimes as Christians we say dumb things. And we need to be really careful when we claim something God has done. Because I think in Leah's case, I'm not sure she got it right. You know, had Jacob not mentioned to her his parents' slave sex disaster? Had he not reminded her that God did in fact come through on his promise by the ripe old age of 91? Perhaps they just needed to ask God, did anyone consider his opinion in this? 
And remarkably, the God of the Bible continues to love. Remarkably, Leah continues to conceive. Verse 19. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honour because I have borne him six sons. So he named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dina. Is that how you would pronounce it? Dinah? Yeah. So Leah's back in Jacob's sleeping books for now, at least while the kids are being born. But you notice even after Zebulun, she doesn't even mention love. She just says honour. It's almost like Jacob's not even recognising her as his wife. So all up, Leah has six boys and a daughter. We don't hear much more about her. She's only mentioned another two times. Um, The first is when Jacob is coming up to meet Esau. You know, he's like freaking out and he sets up his family in order and he puts, uh, he goes the slaves. So he's at the front, then the slaves, then Leah and then Rachel. Sorry, the kids are in there with whoever's had them and then Rachel and Joseph. And so the whole idea behind that is that if Esau was hostile, that the people at the back could escape first. So even by the time Jacob has left Haran, and bumps into Esau, he still hasn't really changed his opinion of Leah. She's still like this plan B. And the only like possible redeeming moment I could find is when Jacob, this is about Jacob in terms of his love, is talking about being buried much later in Genesis. He mentions wanting to be buried with Isaac and Sarah. And there's a short verse that says, there I buried Leah. And we're not actually told when she died. It was after Rachel Um, and perhaps Jacob had a change of heart late in the game. But I think it's a nice little touch that it says that she was buried with the other patriarchs. But for Leah, it's quite a life to have lived, to grow up having a better-looking sibling, her father betray her for his own gain, to then be married to a man that never really loved you, while also being barren for a large percentage of your adult life. You can understand a woman like this not having much regard for men by the end of her life. The two most important men in her life used her and never loved her as they should have. Was she perfect? Nope. She had her issues. She said some funny things. But she carried burdens given to her by people that, she sh- that should have never happened. So that's Leah's story. And like any part of the Bible... God is not only speaking to the people in the story, but he's also speaking to us. So what do we take away? What is God showing us as a church? There's just so many things I could have pulled out of this story, but I only want to deal with a few. And so I say that because if you feel like there's something I haven't dealt with, you think I could have done it better, come and see me afterwards. I want to get better at this. I want to get better at understanding God, his love for the Bible, um, his word, and you guys. Um, and they're just little things that maybe even right now, as I say, them are creating these little rabbit holes that are just going to distract you from the rest. So if I don't deal with it, I'm not doing it on purpose. Maybe I am. I don't know. But I love you guys, and um, I just really feel like this is what God wants me to say in this short time. So I want to talk about sex. That's my first point. And that may make some of you uncomfortable. 
but I can tell you, you're not as uncomfortable as me because my dad is sitting in the third row. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to go into details, but we do need to talk about it. We need to talk about it because it's a real experience for many, and you just don't hear churches talking about it. I definitely didn't grow up. You know, you know what happens to a teenage boy growing up in a church when all around him, at his school, and his friends, there's all these messages about sex. But I didn't really hear a whole lot from the church. And when you did try and talk about it, you're actually looked at as weird. Um, oh, we don't talk about that. That's just that's just weird. Like it was a dirty word. Um, you know what that does to a teenage boy growing up, entering his early 20s? <laughs> For me, I said, fine. If the church has nothing to say about it, if God has nothing to say about it, then I'll start listening to some of these other voices. Maybe I'll look at porn. Maybe that'll help me understand how my body works. Maybe I'll get online and search for answers and delete my browsing history and hope my parents don't notice. Maybe I'll watch some Hollywood movie and see how they do it. Like, it's wicked. But I just don't know how many mindsets, how many habits, all those years of searching, what that brought into my dating years, into my marriage. You get my point. <laughs> if, if we won't be the ones to talk with our kids about this, can we really blame them if they go elsewhere? But before I go on, I do want to say that sex isn't everything. It just isn't. I'm speaking to those who are single as I talk about this. I want you to know that, yes, God, that sex is a good gift given by God, but not experiencing it does not make you any lesser an expression of God's humanity than a married person. Jesus never experienced it in his earthly life. Paul didn't either. And we know we won't be given in marriage in heaven, so I'm assuming sex won't make the cut in the new creation either. See, sex isn't everything. And that's another thing I wish I was told growing up. The pressure I felt as a young man needing to find someone, that growing up just meant you got married. It's simply not true. And like, don't get me wrong, I didn't have people over my shoulder every day saying, Tim, you've got to get married, you've got to get married, you've got to move out home, you've got to get married. But I would have loved to have been told I had a choice and that if I chose to be single, that God was okay with that. So I just want to encourage you, those who are single, that don't live with that pressure. Be free, knowing God made you a certain way. And if that means staying single for the rest of your life, he will take care of you. So my first point from the story, sex doesn't equal love. To those who are married, who will be married, Having sex doesn't mean you are loving them well. It's not even an indication love is alive in the marriage. Jacob was having a lot of sex with his wives and clearly Leah still felt unloved. With Leah, Jacob seemed to stop having sex once she lost the ability to have kids. And like, I'm not an expert on bedroom dynamics, but this story paints sex in a very negative light. See, sex isn't just given for baby making. It's an awesome gift of pleasure between a husband and a wife. You just need to spend a couple of minutes in Song of Solomon and, and tell me God doesn't want sex to be enjoyable. I actually met someone the other day that just said, I can't do it. I can't read Song of Solomon. <laughs> I was like, maybe you need to. You're married. Might do wonders for your marriage. Anyway, side note. See, but Jacob, he seemed only interested in the be fruitful and multiply part. But it's so much more. Don't buy into this idea that it's dirty, that it's sinful. Sex was created in the garden and God called it good. 
The only way something good like sex becomes sinful is when we use it for something it was never intended to. But if you're married, then this gift is for you. It's a celebration of love a man and a woman have for each other. Secondly, just because you are married and can have sex is no guarantee you'll have kids. I know it's hard to hear, but Leah and Rachel are a perfect example of this truth. I can't find a single verse in the Bible where God condemns someone for their inability to have kids. Not a single verse. However, there seems to be verses where women condemn themselves. And so I want to encourage you women, if you've felt this way, you need to understand that God's faithfulness is not dependent on how many kids you have or don't have. We live in a broken world with broken bodies, broken relationships, and there are so many questions we won't have answered until we finally get to heaven. I just can't give you an answer as to why some can have kids and others can't, but I do know God says you are not condemned. He still loves you and will one day make it right. That's the hope of what Jesus has done, the hope he gives that one day things will be made right. This next point should be for all of us, but given the story we just read, I want to speak to the husbands, I want to speak to the brothers and the dads. Our wives, our sisters, our daughters are under a wave of social pressures, stresses. And sometimes they manifest itself in rash, illogical, desperate choices. Moments of not being themselves, or maybe being the worst version of themselves, just like Leah and Rachel. And so I encourage you men, don't be like Jacob. Don't be silent and just go along with it. Don't watch them drift away into despair. They may be saying things from a dark place, an unhealthy place. This is where you be a man. You protect her, you hold her, you pray with her until her eyes lift and she remembers her saviour. She remembers who she is in Christ. It might take hours, it might take days, maybe longer, but don't give in. You fight for her with all the strength Jesus has given you. She will thank you for it when she comes out of the turning tide. Another thing I notice here that love can be lost. To the married man, I say, we live in a world that tries to make you fall out of love with your wife. You know, I could list the usual suspects, porn, magazines, dirty jokes, all these things out there. But usually when we're thinking of fighting to love our wives, we think of protecting against an enemy out there. But I want us to think a little bit closer to home as well. Like picking a job and working longer hours at work, and because of that, you hardly ever see your wife. I have a friend who I bumped into recently who worked five till seven every day of the week, and sometimes Saturdays. Um, I think that's almost 14 hours a day working. He would leave work before his kids get up, and he would be home after they'd gone to bed. And his his wife was just left with everything. And their marriage broke up, And I was sitting there in this pub talking to this guy and he just had no clue as to why his wife had just sort of gotten up and gone. And to me, it was just obvious. Like, it's tragic, but can you blame her? Like, he was never home. All for what? A nice house? Like, he he was obsessed with, like, this house, this car. When was the last time you took your wife on a date? Perhaps getting home from work and always looking at what, she's, what she doesn't get done around the house. 
See, it's not always the things out there that make us fall out of love with our wives. I'd argue that the way we treat our wives is just as powerful a force as porn and the usual suspects. See, Leah was never told she was loved. She lived a lifetime constantly wondering, hoping that her husband would see her, love her. And even as God was raining down these blessings in the form of children, Jacob still didn't love her as he ought. So you've got to ask yourself, men, ask yourself this question. Do you, does your wife know you love her? Quick tests will indicate how you're going with this. How often do you th- do things without thinking of a reward? Just loving her without question. See, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of having this exchange mentality in my mind that if I do something for Tiffany, that she will do something for me. The problem with this is that your expectations stop getting met eventually and eventually you get bitter about it. And we just, we're always let down when we have these expectations in our mind. And I started to think, it was really interesting, I had this image of Jesus in the tomb, like just lying there dead, uh, as I was thinking about this idea of loving without reward. See, when Jesus died on the cross, when he laid down his life for his bride, he was dead for three days. Was there a reward from his death? Later there was, but he was dead for three days. There was a time when his love was just given and it was for his bride. No embrace, just a bride found in the reality that her husband had just died for her. That's just a picture I think that can help us when we're tempted to expect something for the love that we show. Remember the Lord Jesus in the grave, his body motionless, his life given, spent, no reward, not yet, just love given, willing to lose it all. I say again, don't be like Jacob, be like Jesus. When you love like that, you are free from expectation because God is slowly showing you that to love is to focus on what you do for others not what you get from them. And to the women in the church who may not have had the father, the brother, the husband that they should have had, God sees you and he hears you. He loves you and as a man I say sorry. I'm sorry we haven't fought for you. I'm sorry for the times we've stayed silent when we should have spoken up. I'm sorry for watching you be attacked and not step in to protect you. I'm sorry for silencing you in the church rather than lifting you up. I'm sorry we often fall in love with other things and leave you in want. I'm sorry we are all too often like Jacob and not like Jesus. We need your forgiveness. We need to become better men that take seriously what Jesus said. Lay down your life for your wife as Christ did for the church. Will you help us get better? Because we can't do it without you. And the reasons we need to become better men, the reasons we can't do it without all of you, is because there is no man in this room that can truly satisfy you. There is no man in this room that can truly love you perfectly. There is no man in this room that can give you an identity that cannot be shaken. There is no man in this room that can ultimately protect you from death. 
There's no man in this room that can do any of those things because we are all Jacob's. But there is hope for you women and for men. We can rejoice because Jesus is the better Jacob. Jesus is the better husband. See, Jesus doesn't work seven years to have you. He gives his life for you. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus doesn't just save you and then stop loving you. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. His love does not end. It is not taken from you on bad days. It is not more on good days. And is never lost when you feel alone. It is everlasting and unfailing. So it's all the Lears and the Jacobs. Look to the one who makes a choice every day to truly love you and keep you for all eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you cannot read these words in this story and yet feel so many things. Feel pain. Desperation. Pride. Oh Lord, this could have been so much better but for a few silly choices that had lasting consequences. And yet, Lord Jesus, you have come to this earth and you have given us your life. You have come and died in our place. You have done that so that we would not repeat this cycle like Jacob, Lord, but that we would become more like Jesus. Lord, would you help us with these things? Would you take whatever small thing I've been able to offer this morning through your word, Lord, and make this church more like Jesus. We need you. We love you. Amen. I'm going to sing a few songs now um, in response. This first song's a new one, so feel free to hum it, not hum it. It's a song about 